to Matthew chapter 26 that uh, was just read to us, page 995. Now in December we had the privilege of Philip Jensen coming to stay with us for a few days and uh, he did a midweek talk here. And I remember when Philip became the dean of St. Andrew's Cathedral that he caused quite a stir in his first sermon at the cathedral where he did suggest that not all religions can be right. Other faiths should be tolerated and given freedom in society, but, and, he, and if we could just move it forward, here's the quote, they cannot all be right. Some or all of them are wrong. And if wrong, are the monstrous lies and deceits of Satan, devised to destroy the life of believers. He's never one to make shy comments. I remember a subsequent interview with Sally Lone on the Australian Broadcasting Radio, and it went something like this. Sally said this, Are you saying other religions are wrong? You can't say that, can you? Philip's reply, Is the world flat or round? Did Jesus die or did he not die? Christianity says that Christ did die. Muslims say that Christ did not die. In the Quran, Surah 4157. Logically, it is impossible that all religions are right. Sally replied, Well, yes, maybe in some specifics they're different. Uh, but surely in general they're the same. Love, tolerance, goodwill to all men and all that stuff. Philip replied, let me tell you, there is no bigger issue in Christianity than this. Christ died for our sins. We are either right or we are wrong. Now, we do not understand Christianity if we don't understand the centrality of the death of Jesus. In fact, you cannot be a Christian unless you know and trust that his death was for you. Now, where do we get this idea from? Um, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it probably sounds a very strange idea. Many people have died in history. They don't seem to have significance for the whole world right down through history. Is this an idea that uh, the early church made up? Well, the answer to that is no. It comes from Jesus Christ himself. And uh, I want us to examine this very passage that was read to us a moment ago, Matthew chapter 26. Uh, this is one of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And as uh, Liam said, we're starting or restarting a series in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that's going to go all the way up now up to Easter. But as we kind of examine this, I suppose I need to warn you that this is never simply an intellectual uh, exercise. These chapters focus our eyes on the death of Jesus, but the challenge really is a personal one. What does his death mean to me, to you? What is Jesus worth to you? Because as this chapter opens, we see differing responses to that question. We see brutality, we see beauty, 
and we see betrayal. I'm just going to think about those three points. First five verses, we see this kind of blind brutality. Uh, Verse 3, the chief priests and the elders assemble in the courtyard of the high priest of the temple, Caiaphas. And they've come to their conclusions about Jesus. This troublesome preacher from Nazareth who's been so critical of their leadership, he needs to be arrested and killed. Jesus is worth nothing to them. They have their own religious traditions. They have their own worship. And to their minds, it's got nothing to do with this Jesus. They don't need this Jesus, thank you very much. They're blind to any evidence of him being the Messiah that they were supposedly waiting for. They've actually judged him to be a nobody, an irritation that needs to be brutally dispatched. And they illustrate what Jesus has already called them in Matthew's gospel, whitewashed tombs, whitewashed sepulchers. Um, They look good on the outside, but inside is moral corruption and death. And we should pause to reflect that these were kind of the best of the men in many ways. Uh, These were upstanding, impressive religious people. And it highlights to us that being religious is not the answer that the Bible gives to the world's problems. Our problems are much deeper than can be fixed by external religion. Our problem is deep within our hearts that actually, given the right circumstances, we would gladly murder and dispatch people who are too inconvenient for us. But they've got a problem, haven't they? They saw the way the crowds welcomed Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They saw the massive crowds and they thought, well, we, we can't afford a riot at the time of Passover. Passover, the most significant uh, religious festival for them. Uh, Jerusalem would have been absolutely jam-packed full of worshippers. Massive numbers. They could not afford to, to seize Jesus openly when the crowds had received him so warmly. And so they, they plot and scheme how they can get their hands on Jesus in some secretive and sneaky way. But how are they going to do it? Now the irony, of course, is that this secret meeting is not secret at all, according to the first two verses of 26. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. Uh, Verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, this is kind of marking the end of his public teaching ministry, um, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Three times before this in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been preparing his disciples about what would happen to him. He must be delivered over and be crucified. Jesus knew it would happen and he knew it would happen because this was God's great big plan of salvation. This language of must is Jesus reflecting his sense of God's divine will that his cross was absolutely essential in God's saving plans and purposes for the world. And just before they uh, continue in this, Jesus reminds his disciples again, as you know, that the Passover is coming in two days. The Son of Man will be 
handed over to be crucified. In two days, they'd be eating roast lamb. A hugely significant meal, a symbolic meal to remind them of the night that the Israelites were redeemed out of slavery under cruel Pharaoh in Egypt and released and heading to their promised land. And the instructions of God were clear on that night, that first Passover night in Egypt. Each household was to take a lamb. The lamb was to live with them. It was to be identified with their family. And then the day would come when that lamb would be killed. And they would eat this lamb on Passover night. But a key step was that the blood of that lamb should be applied to the doorposts of their house. For God was going to bring the tenth and most terrible plague upon the whole land of Egypt. His angel would pass over it. His wrath and judgment would be poured out. And the firstborn sons of every household would die unless they obeyed what God instructed. And that this lamb in some way was a substitute for the firstborn. And by applying his blood, they're saying we're sheltering under the blood of a lamb so that our child will be kept safe, that we would be spared this judgment of God. Jesus says it's two days before Passover. And ironically, the, the, the leaders were blind to the fact that their religious traditions, now followed over hundreds of years, were all there to prepare them for him, the Passover lamb. He was the one who was God's sinless sacrifice. That if people would shelter under his blood, God's wrath would pass over them and they'd be unscathed. And they will become his redeemed forever people. No, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, Jesus says. And as they plotted this act of brutality, they never dreamed of the opportunity that would come to them from Judas. And in Matthew's text, in between these two dark moments, the dastardly plots of the, of the chief priests and the ugly defection of Judas, Matthew puts a stunning moment of beauty. Can you imagine this scene at Bethany, a village just outside Jerusalem? Simon, formerly a leper, probably someone healed by Jesus, has thrown a meal for Jesus and his disciples. Uh, no uh, tables and chairs, probably a rug in the middle of the floor. Uh, they're lying, faces towards the food, their feet away from the food, probably lying on a uh, hand on their heads really, and just eating together in that way. And then a moment that they would never forget, a moment that we're still going to talk about today. A woman with an expensive alabaster jar of perfume, probably a family heirloom, comes alongside Jesus and she breaks the neck of the flask and she pours this very expensive perfume over the head of Jesus. And can you picture this scene? Suddenly the room is filled with this incredible smell, this perfume. And I imagine everyone went very quiet this is a slightly awkward moment, isn't it? What a strange event. 
And then as the silence subsides, they begin muttering to each other. She used up the whole bottle. Do you know how much that stuff is worth? What is she doing? Mark's gospel tells us that probably this perfume was worth about a year's salary. I don't know what a year's salary is for you. Maybe you can call out loud now. Oh no, we're British, we don't do that. Let's just say the average salary in Scotland is about 27,000. What would be a good use of 27,000? One moment spent, poured out on Jesus. Do you think that was a good use of that money? They didn't think so. What have you done? Think how many poor people you could have helped if you'd sold that. What are they really saying? Are they really caring about the poor? Or are they saying something different? I think as they condemn this woman and demean her gift, the person they're really demeaning is Jesus. To their thinking, Jesus isn't worth such an extravagant gift. Far worthier causes than him could have been found for this gift. And Jesus steps in and says something that greatly surprises them in verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. What a contrasting perspective. They think she's done something wasteful. Jesus says she's done something beautiful. I've always thought that performance art is a rather strange thing to be doing and slightly amusing. But here is performance art at its most beautiful. Art really has a practical purpose, but it most definitely makes a statement, doesn't it? And this woman is making a very powerful statement about Jesus. In one moment, she's expressing what Jesus meant to her. Jesus was worth everything to her. L'Oreal used to sell their cosmetics to women by telling them, because you're worth it. And um, a few months ago, one of the Red Tops brutally treated Cheryl after she was dropped from sponsorship by L'Oreal by putting on their front page, because you're not worth it, which was pretty harsh, I thought. But here, in a very dramatic moment, she's saying loud and clear, Jesus, you are worth it. You're worth everything. It's an amazing moment of worship, isn't it? And Jesus recognizes as such in verse 11, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I don't think Jesus is knocking giving money to the poor. He'd reminded the religious leaders earlier in the gospel uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. But there is a command that precedes that, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And by doing this for Jesus, she is showing that he was more important than even the important thing of caring for the poor. You always have the poor, 
Jesus says, but you will not always have me. And as a big aside, isn't it sad that the only time that we truly express our love and best thoughts for people is at their funeral when they're not around to hear it? And Jesus does a beautiful thing here. Uh, She does a beautiful thing for Jesus by letting him know before he dies what he means to her. The disciples have been told at least four times about what Jesus is going to do. He's going to die. He's actually going to be crucified. Horrific death. And uh, consistently their response is really rubbish. It's not only inappropriate, it's often embarrassing. But this woman, who has far less access, seems to understand so much more than they have. She seems to understand he was God's king. He was the king. She anoints his head. And she understood that this king was going to die, and she was preparing him for burial. Verse 13. This is an astonishing statement. Jesus underlines it. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now if you quickly read those verses, you'll miss how stunning this is. But think about what Jesus is saying here. This woman is preparing my body for burial. And wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now think about your own death. Uh, Do you see your own death as good news? Most people actually fear their death. But it's clear from Jesus' lips that he knew his death was special. Jesus says his death would mean good news. Good news for the whole world. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? My death, my burial, will be good news for the whole world. How can it be good news? Well, it's good news because he is the king of the nations. It's good news because his death was as the Passover lamb, the one whose sacrifice will secure the forgiveness and salvation of his people. And it's good news because raised from the dead, he will be the exalted king of the nations. That people will want to proclaim throughout the whole world, look, this is the one who can fix our problem with sin. This is the one who can make us right with God. This is the one who has the right to rule. This is the one who is coming to return to rule. The Bible says, and she somehow sees it in a way that others hadn't seen it, and she says to Jesus, you are worthy of the most extravagant worship. We read from Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man will have an everlasting dominion and all the nations will worship him. Well, she gets in first. She gets in her worship first. He's worth it. And so, what about you? Do you worship Jesus with your whole life? Do you think he's worthy of your whole life? 
Is it obvious to other people that you worship him in that way? With your money, your time, your gifts, your abilities, your timetable, your life. Is it obvious to people? And what I want to remind us, if you're Christians here today, is that we, as we worship Jesus with our whole lives, notice here, Jesus sees it and acknowledges it and sees it as a beautiful thing. Our King notices our worshipful devotion. But what is Jesus worth to us? There's another response here, isn't it? The betrayal. Judas! One of those words hissed at people. It's never a good thing, is it? It's one of those boys' names that hasn't really taken off. Come on, little Judas. Time to go to the park. You don't hear that, do you? He's kind of spoilt the name for everybody. His name means the very worst form of betrayal. And do you see that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to Jesus? Think about all that he had heard and seen as an eyewitness of Jesus. Lepers healed, the blind seeing, the lame leaping, a paralyzed man. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk. And he saw him pick it up and walk out. What was Jesus worth to Judas? 30 pieces of silver. A bit of money. Despite all that he'd experienced, Judas, having heard, oh, Jesus says he's going to be handed over, delivered over, he goes to the chief priest and says, um, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? I've been trying to wonder, what is the motivation of Judas? Did he hear all this talk of crucifixion and thought, well, I'd better just to cash in my stock now and uh, get something out of it if he's so determined to die? I don't know. What evil delight was this when they heard the news and they gladly promised him the cash for his troubles. But what an acid contrast we've got here between this woman and Judas. She clearly values Jesus more than money and possessions. Judas powerfully demonstrates that he values money more than Jesus. And just as much as we will uh, remember her for her extravagant worship, we will we're always remembering him for his greed and treachery. And I wonder, what will be the legacy of our lives today? Do we value Jesus, his sacrifice, his resurrection and life more than anything else? Or will we trade him in for, I don't know, career success? I heard John Lennox, who's now an Oxford professor, but he, telling the story of when he was a student at Oxford, uh, at Cambridge. He had a, a meal with a, a Nobel Prize winner who heard he was a Christian and then basically called him up to the room with a bunch of other lecturers and said, if you want to be a serious scientist, give up your faith. 
otherwise you'll never be considered a serious scientist. Well, for a young student, that's quite a lot of pressure, isn't it? What would he do? Uh, well, he said, well, what have you got to offer me? And when the guy said, he said, well, it doesn't compare to what Jesus offers me. I think I'll stay with Jesus. And he still became an Oxford prof. But what will you trade for Jesus? The promise of a career? A relationship? Material comfort? The promise of sex? What will be the legacy of our lives? See, two different people with very different memorials. What's Jesus worth to us? Well, you know, because of the feebleness of our hearts that are prone to forget all the blessings that come to us in Jesus, he, he's left us a memorial meal to stir up our, the low embers of our hearts, to, to burn them back into a blaze. And tonight we're going to meet for communion. So why don't you come and join us for that meal where Jesus gave us that very meal because he knows how prone we are and weak we are to forget and next Sunday, we're going to examine what happened on that evening where Jesus, knowing that he would be betrayed by one of his disciples, yet invites them all to break bread with him and says, take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup, he, he gives thanks and he passes it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood secures a new right relationship with God, a new binding covenant of love for all who will take hold of Christ. Oh, my friend, he is worth everything. Do you have him? If you have him, you have everything you will need. Is he yours? If he's not yours today, you'll, you'll see in the bulletin, there's a, there's a prayer that you can use today to respond to him and take hold of all he is and all he offers for yourself. And if you need some help doing that, why don't you come and, there's, there's guys who will be here in the front row willing to pray with you and help you and talk this through. My Christian friends, he is worth it. Let's pray. Father, please settle our hearts to see the great treasures that are there in your Son for us. That we might, by faith, may hold on to him and never let go. Lord, would you be honored and worshipped through the response of the obedience of our lives. For he is worthy, the Lamb that was slain, now standing in heaven, at the center of the praises of heaven, and we joyfully join in with it and say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. In his precious name, amen.